spend this week and next week in the book of Jude. And uh, like I say, it's quite an intriguing book. But look how it opens up. Jude, verse 1. Just 25 short verses, one chapter. Listen to these words. Jude 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt it necessary to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now let your eye drop down to verse 20. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your, on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. <laughs> Interesting book. So who's Jude? Bible scholars, conservative Bible scholars, would tell us that there are three possibilities. But far and away, the leading candidate is the half-brother the half -brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, after Jesus was conceived and was born, Mary and Joseph, like all other couples, entered into a normal marital relationship, had other children, who would have been the half-brothers and half-sisters of the Lord Jesus. The fact that this took place shouldn't surprise us, and it shouldn't worry us. The Bible is clear that we have opportunity to, to participate, each of us, we have opportunity to participate in pro-creation. That through us, God brings into existence other human beings that have eternal life in their future. It's not a matter of if they'll live for eternity. It's a matter of where. So the Lord Jesus had several half-brothers and several half-sisters, and Jude is one of those. And you meet another one just a few books earlier, when you read the book of James, another of the Lord Jesus Christ's half-brothers. And in that short book, if you've not uh, spent much time there, you might want to take, take some time maybe this next week and spend some time in, in, in the book of James. Uh, in, that sh in that short five-chapter book, James uh, gives a wonderful review of the importance of faith in action. We also see James a little earlier in, in his ministry in Acts chapter 15, where he is uh, one of the prominent, if not the prominent leader in the church in Jerusalem. 
the very first church that was born in Pentecost. James was very probably the lead pastor, and you ought to read Acts chapter 15, where he responds to some issues that were taking place in other places. And Paul even submitted himself to the, to the direction and the suggestions of the elders in Jerusalem, of whom James was the prominent pastor. And so there's Jude, and there's James, and they, they, have, they have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But early in life, it would appear... Early on, it, it appears that uh, the, those half-brothers and half-sisters kind of kept Jesus at arm's length. Not coming to faith in him until they saw his resurrected body. Why do you suppose that is? <clears throat> Why do you suppose that Jesus' half-brothers and half-sisters kind of kept him at, at arm's length early on in life? Wow, would you like to live in a, in a home where your brother was perfect? Everything he said was right. Every chore was done ahead of time. Everything he did, his parents were always seeing the good things and everything he did was just right on the money and his mom and dad were so proud of him all the time. What would that be like? You can ask my sisters and ask them what it was like. And see Denise shaking her head? No, don't bother. So Jude has this special and unique standing that he can draw on. The half-brother of the Lord Jesus. And yet he doesn't. Look what he says in verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. That's where I'm at. That's where you're at. A slave of Jesus Christ. Let's look at the overarching theme of the book of Jude just as a, a backdrop as we begin, and then we'll kind of dig into some and unpack a few of the other items that are here. But the overarching, <coughs> the overarching theme of Jude is found here in verses, uh, end of verse 1 and all the way through verse 4. So look there with me, if you will. To those who are the called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. His true heart's desire, I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. Wouldn't that have been a wonderful letter to read? I would have loved to have read what Jude had to say about the common salvation that he and you and I share. But something diverted his attention. Something so important that he set aside his planned subject on the depths of their salvation to engage in another topic. See it there in the latter part of verse 3. I felt it necessary to write you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. Now remember, if, if, um, if our dating of the book, which I believe was, the book was probably written around 70 to 80 AD, and if that's accurate, which I believe it is, then all of the apostles are gone. Paul and Peter have already died, very probably martyred. There's one apostle that's left. Anyone remember who that is? 
You're not allowed to answer. John, very good. John's still here, but everybody else is gone. My point is simply that even before the end of the first century, the enemy's attack on the church has already gotten inside the walls. There are already those who are inside the church who are quietly and subversively influencing and impacting its success. And Jude introduces them here in verse 4. Certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. False teachers and leaders and influential people whose goal is confusion and division. I mean, look at what they engaged in. In fact, we didn't read these verses, but look at a few verses with me if you would. Look at what they're doing and how they're they're accomplishing what Jude is concerned about. Look at verse 8. In the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. So they defile the flesh. They, they, they pollute their bodies with depraved acts, with ungodly words, with, 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 with blasphemous deeds, whatever it might be. But they're involved in it, many of those things and they defile the flesh. goes on and says that they reject authority. They reject authority. Display contempt for those that are in charge. Often through, through, through disrespect, through disorder. And in this context, it's very probably through, um, it, it appears that it's the authority of the local church. They're kind of setting that aside and, and moving against it. And they revile angelic majesties. Let your eye drop down to verse 12. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Hidden reefs in your love feasts. You know, just to take a moment and step aside and and talk about that. You know, in the first century, the church would gather on a regular basis for what they would call a love feast. And it would simply be a meal that they would gather together and and enjoy. And everybody would bring something for the meal. What do we call those today? A a what? A potluck. It doesn't sound... Oh, never mind. Potluck. A carrion meal might be a better way of saying that. But they would bring in the food and they would share that together. And <clears throat> it, was, it was called a koinonia or a, a fellowshipping in common. And the point of it was not to get, hungry, to get fed. The point of it was to fellowship together. Because the word koinonia means to share things in common. <clears throat> and we would learn certain things as a result of that meal. Your food would come and my food would come and I would... <clears throat> excuse me. I would partake of your food and you would partake of my food and we would share those things. And so by eating your food, I'm, I'm taking something in of yours. And by consuming my food, you're taking something in of mine. And it's a, it's a physical picture of something that's true of us spiritually. And these love feasts were a critical time for the church at that time. In fact, there are denominations and, and groups today that will still have love feasts. And they're a joy to be a part of as you gather together and you fellowship but the point of them is, is not to come and get full. In fact, you might want later on today to read in 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul deals with some of those issues of the, the wrong use of the love feast. And he says because of that, you have problems in the church because a lot of folks will come and they, they kind of hoard their own food because I brought what I like. 
and I'm going to eat this and you eat your stuff and I'm not sharing. And that's the, not the point of the meal. The point of the meal was to share things in common because it, it displays physically as you and I eat a spiritual truth, a spiritual reality that we share a common Savior. We fellowship spiritually just like we're fellowshipping at the table. Well, Jude says that in the first century, many of these false teachers that had begun to sneak into the church were hidden reefs in their love feasts. When they feast with you without fear. So they come together and they're just coming together to eat. And he's awfully graphic when he says they're hidden reefs, isn't he? A lot of these folks who were reading this were probably fishermen and knew exactly what a reef would do to a boat. But you don't see it coming. Everything's going along normal. Boat's moving along, everything's, everything looks fine, and all of a sudden, you hit the reef, and there's a problem. And what Jude is saying is the same can be true in the local church. Inside of the local church, pay attention to what's going on, because they can be hidden reefs if someone is in the body and is teaching incorrectly, or, or, or not really fellowshipping in a way that is, is a, an appropriate koinonia, but doing those things for themselves. He says they're hidden reefs in your love feasts, caring for themselves. They run to the table first. Philip, not that going to the table first is a bad thing. <laughs> Sorry. Now whenever we have one, everybody will stand back and say, well, I'm not going to go to the table first. That's not the point. They were more concerned about themselves and their own family than they were about the, the families around them. Caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried by the winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly daddy, so graphic, so descriptive. And we're going to look at those more next week as we, as we move into, the, into those verses. But there's another verse where he describes these um, folks that we need to watch out for. Look at verse 16. These are grumblers. Finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. So friends, Jude was concerned even in the first century about false teachers and leaders and the influential people that can come into a church. that can align with us and how they were beginning to creep in and to impact the church. And we're going to read and uh, study more about this next week as we go on. But... but Though that's the overarching theme of the book of Jude. Jude, <clears throat> Jude hides, and he doesn't really hide it. Jude uh, has three truths that are here in this book that are, that are exciting and challenging and something that you and I ought to look at. And I want to I unpack these a little bit for you today. Look at a couple of them today, and we'll look at the rest of them next week. But I want to show them to you first. Let's look at the three, and then we'll focus on the first one. For the rest of our time today. Look at verse 1. First truth. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother to James, to those who are the called. That's number one. You and I as believers have been called. And the truth of that and what the New Testament teaches us about what that calling looks like and what the, influ what the impact of that calling is is exciting and we're going to look at that today not only are we the called but look at verse three halfway down i felt it necessary to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith so not only are we called we are contenders 
And what that requires of us, not only in our lifestyle, but also in our study of the Word and understanding what the Word says. Growing in our understanding of what the Word says and being able to use that to protect ourselves, to protect our families, and to protect the local church so that we're solid and we're growing and and, uh, the false teachers are kept at bay. We're called, we're contenders, and then look at verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. We're called, we're contenders, and we're kept. So I want your eyes to focus on, or we're going to focus on, verse 1 today for the rest of our time. To those who are the called. The use of the term called here isn't referring to a vocational calling, though any legitimate vocational calling is certainly a a, a calling of God. But here the calling is, um, the calling that's under consideration is more of a soteriological kind. uh, That calling that results in our salvation. And as it's being used here, it's the call that's the initial saving act of God. The scriptural doctrine of, of, of being called is, is really twofold. The first is the general call, which, which comes through the proclamation of the gospel. And we're going to spend a little time moving around a little bit through the, through the New Testament, so you can either follow along or just listen. But some examples of, of that general call. The first is here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3, where Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and then he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So that general call is, is what comes through the proclamation of the gospel. The message of the gospel is authoritatively proclaimed. It involves a historical portion. And it's, it's not something that's debated. This is what happened. This is the, this is the call of God. It, it's, it's, it has a, a historical portion. That is, Jesus came and lived and died and rose again. It has a theological uh, portion. That is, you need, to, you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And then it has a call. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's the general call of God. And that is to be, that is to be proclaimed. That's what we're, we're left here to do. Simply tell the message. The general call of God. Jesus did it. In fact, I believe it's in, in Matthew chapter 7 where he's, he's at, the, <clears throat> he's, he's at the, uh, the feast. And he stands and, he, and he, he, he basically says, Anyone who thirsts, come to me and I'll give you to drink. It was that general call that salvation is available. That Christ has come and died and rose again and that he beckons you. He beckons you to believe and to be saved. Repent and believe in the gospel. The general call. I'd be remiss if I didn't stop now and ask. Have you heard that message? Have you heard it clearly? Have you stopped and repented? Have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Critical that we understand that that's a step that we need to take.
The second aspect of, of the call of the of the uh, calling of God is is what is called the effectual call, or that which accomplishes salvation. And what it does is, <clears throat> in the scripture, it talks about this effectual call in that it it, the, it it takes the general call and God infuses it into the mind and the heart of the person that hears it, and He brings them into the kingdom. Salvation is theirs because God opens their heart and their minds. In fact, turn to. Romans chapter 8. If you're following along with me. It's probably the classic passage that talks about this effectual call of God. I want you to see some things. And then we're going to walk through the New Testament and see some really exciting truths. But in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 it says this. In fact it's a verse that you're very familiar with. Listen to these words. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called, there's the word, according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And by the way, that word firstborn does not mean that Jesus was created or that the son of God was created or he had a beginning. It's a priority of position, not of time. Priority of position. He was the firstborn among many brethren. And those, now listen here, and those, in verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. There is the effectual call that I'm talking about. And what basically this verse is saying is, is that, that God in eternity past looked down through the corridors of time and he saw you. And though the word is foreknew, a better translation might be foreloved. God looked down through time and he loved you. Why? I don't know. I certainly don't know why he loved me. But he looked down through the quarters of time and he loved those whom he would call. For whatever reason. He loved them. Those that he loved, he predestined, and those he predestined, he called. That is the effectual call that Jude is talking about in verse 1. And there are several results of this effectual call that I'd kind of like to outline today for you. Just going to walk through a few verses. If you have a pen, you might want to write down some of these. Maybe later on in your time in the Word, you can go back to these and kind of kind of um, uh, spend a little more time and learn a little bit more about the results of the call of God in your life. How much God loved you and what he accomplished in this calling that brought you into his kingdom, into his family. You're already there in Romans, I presume. So over in Romans chapter 11 and verse 29. Now let me begin in verse 28. For the stamp, from the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That's number one. God's call is immutable. It's unchanging. It will never go away. His call on your life is, is complete and it's perfect and it's forever. And so your perseverance is assured. When God called you, he called you for forever. You will persevere. 
And when the sin of the world sneaks in in your life and challenges you and causes you to drop to your knees and you, and you slip and you fall, we need to remember that God cleanses us and sets us back up on the path that he set out for us and we are called and we are his children. And we can have victory in those areas of our life. That calling of God is completely, completely dependent upon him not me. His call is immutable. Over in 2 Timothy, this is going to be kind of like an opportunity for you to see if you know where all of the New Testament books are at. <laughs> 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Who has saved us and called us with unholy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. You hear this? That calling that he's, he's accomplished for us is according to his own purpose and grace, which he granted us in Christ Jesus. Your call is dependent completely upon God, and it's because of his purpose that you're a part of his kingdom. It should cause us to should cause us to be fairly excited about the fact that because of his will, because of his purpose that I'm called, not something I have done, but what he has accomplished in and through my life. It's, de- it's his determinate purpose which moves him to call us by grace. Of all of the possibilities, of all of the people that he could have called, of all of the programs he could have accomplished, you are a part of the best one. And one day we will slip into his presence and we will worship him forever and ever and ever. And those people that he wants around the throne, those folks that he wants to be a part of his eternity, includes you and I. That's the good news of his call today. It's accomplished because of his perfect will and pleasure. Back in 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We see that the instrument that's used to accomplish this calling is his word. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 14 says, It was for this he called you through our gospel. So the calling is through the word of God. And so when we're involved in sharing the word, God is using us to help to call the the lost to his side. We need to learn the word. We need to use the word so that when we're out there witnessing and accomplishing that, God is calling them through our use of his word. Look over in 1 Peter. I'm sorry we're jumping around so much, but some of these verses are are just so special. 1 Peter chapter 2. And verse 9. I guess I shouldn't apologize for running around in God's word. It's actually good, good practice, good stuff. But listen to this. And by the way, the context of 1 Peter chapter 2 is the local church. He's talking about it being built up into this body. It's talking about the local church. Listen to these words in verse 9 and following. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the calling that God affected in your life was a calling that brought you out of darkness and into light. And that darkness that's being described here in 1 Peter chapter 2 is the darkness of, of, of for lack of a better term, of ignorance. It's, it's a, a, an under, an, a lack of understanding. That God called you out of darkness, out of ignorance, and into an understanding of his gospel. And what does he use to continue to build us up? He uses his word. And so, beloved, the, the, the amount of time that we spend in this book is critical for our growth in Christ. Critical. And so I would, I, if nothing else, I would challenge you this, this, this day to continue to grow in your understanding of the Word. Continue to grow in just the time that you spend there. Opening it up. Reading it. So very, very important brought us out of darkness and into light. Turn over to Galatians chapter 5. In case you're wondering, I purposely make us go back and forth throughout the New Testament so that you have to practice a little bit. I'm just... Galatians chapter 5. Look at verse 13. For you, that's us. <clears throat> you were called to freedom, brethren... Another word there that could be used there is liberty. We were called to liberty. Paul actually goes on in this verse and follows the same theme that Jude was beginning to follow. Look at those words. You were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So we're free, yes, but we're not free to just run off and do whatever we please. We are free to be slaves. <clears throat> we are free to serve each other. So my freedom is not for my own use. My freedom in Christ, the forgiveness that I enjoy in the Lord Jesus, has, has brought me freedom from sin, to be sure. But it's enslaved me to serve you. And it's enslaved you to serve me. That's what the body of Christ is here for. We cannot... We dare not use our freedom as an opportunity to run off and do whatever we want. Certainly not as an opportunity to go off and sin so that there's more grace, more grace can abound. Paul deals with that in so many different epistles. But rather, we are saved and we are, we, we are free to serve one another. And so you can't do that, as 1 Peter chapter 2 just alluded to, and Galatians chapter 5 is now talking about. You can't do that in a vacuum. You can't do that on your own. You can't do that over here separately, apart from the body of Christ. The local church is the critical vehicle that God has left in this world for you and I to engage in, to grow up in our relationship with Christ. You cannot do it alone. It can't be done. And in fact, God will not bless those believers who want to run off and not be a part of the local church. And it's challenging. It's so hard in this day and age because there's so many different places you can attend. And for lack of a better term, we get our nose out of joint over here, we're going to go over to this one over here. Rather than deal with the things that need to be dealt with 
and grow through through the challenge that I've that I've just encountered in my local church and and work through that and find forgiveness and and find repentance and and go to the pastor and learn more about that area of whatever it might be we run off and we go to a new place and that weakens us and it weakens both of those churches frankly the place for you and for I to grow is in the local church. We don't use our freedom as an opportunity to run off and do our own thing. We use our freedom from sin, realizing that we are to serve one another. You see it there in the latter part of verse 13. But through love serve one another. Freedom to serve, not freedom to run. Freedom to live on our own. It's freedom to serve one another. How you doing on that? I know I'm convicted. I was looking through Galatians chapter 5 and realized that, <clears throat> that the calling with which I have been called, that is outlined in Romans chapter 8, that Jude calls all of us the called, that calling means that I have a responsibility in the local church. Or more specifically, if you and I are aligned in the same local church, I have a responsibility to you. Very clearly. And it's very, very important. And my own spiritual growth, my own spiritual accomplishment is dependent upon how serious I am about meeting your needs, coming alongside of you, doing whatever I can do to encourage you, to edify you, to fellowship with you, and you doing the same for me. Y'all realize, <clears throat> I hope that you do, <laughs> you realize that there's a day coming called the, the Bema Seat, or the Judgment Seat of Christ. And there are multiple judgments that are coming. Great White Throne is for those that are not a part of the kingdom. Because they'll look through the They'll look through the, the book of life and their names will not be found. Jesus will set them aside. Send them to that place that's been prepared for them and for the devil and his angels for all of eternity. You and I won't be there. But there is a day coming where we'll be at the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ where you and I individually have a meeting planned. And that meeting will be to stand before the Lord Jesus and give an account for what we've done in this life. We'll give an account for how we use the spiritual gifts he gave to us. Some of us, <clears throat> we'll give an account for whatever our gifts are and how we've used them. You remember, the, you remember the passage that talks about the wood, hay, and stubble and the gold, silver, and precious stone? That's where it will happen. And all that I've done will be piled there. And there'll be a pile of gold, silver, and precious stone, and there'll be a pile of wood, hay, and stubble. And I have this belief that <laughs> that wood, hay, and stubble is going to be larger than I had wanted it to be. And it will be, it will be purified. That'll be gone. The, all of the stuff that I did that didn't edify you, that didn't help the body of Christ grow, 
that was for myself, that was for me, that caused me to run off and, and to do my own thing, will be those things that will be burned. And the gold and the silver and the precious stone will be those works that I've accomplished that are, are a, a result of my spiritual gifts, that, that edified the body, that grew me up as a believer. And those, that gold, silver, and precious stone will be purified by fire. And what will I do with it? I'll lay it at the Lord's feet and say, I did all of these things because of you, but yet here it is. And I don't want to go into that day. A large pile of wood, hay, and stubble, whatever that is. And a little tiny pile of gold, silver, and precious stone. It's dependent upon how I respond to the body of Christ, how I respond to my spouse, how I respond to the word of God and what it's telling me I should be doing and what I should be refraining from, it begins here. It finds, it finds outlet here. And to the effect or to the amount that you and I remove ourselves from the opportunity to do that with the, with the local church, to edify and encourage one another, we build that wood, hay, and stubble. Don't do that. Realize that we have liberty in Christ. We have freedom in Christ. And Galatians 5 tells us, free to serve. Obviously, that's one of my more exciting uh, passages that I looked at. But the last one that I want to look at with you. No, we'll look at a couple more. Turn back over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I think we have enough time to look at all of these. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And verse 7, another impact or influence, a result of this calling of God. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he called us out of, <clears throat> he called us out of impurity to purity. He called us out of a lack of holiness or, or unholiness, I guess for lack of a better term called us out of that for holiness. And so you and I, uh, when we realize that we're a part of the call of God, we, we, we need to be focusing on a pure life. We need to be praying for and learning from his word and talking to our brothers and sisters in Christ and encouraging them to pray for us in an area that we, we may be struggling in so that we can see purity and holiness be something that is issuing forth from our lives. All right, last one I promise. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's conclude here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9, there are a couple of truths that I want you to see about our calling of God. 1 Corinthians 9, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9. God is faithful through whom you were called. That's number one. It's dependent upon the faithfulness of God. Our calling is assured because God is faithful. It goes further. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son. This was the most exciting passage that I looked at this past week as I prepared to talk about being called. Because we're called <clears throat> out of all of those things we talked about into fellowship 
with the Son. God, when he called us in eternity, or when he thought of us, foreloved us in eternity past, and when he ended up calling us in, in, the, in, the, in, in um, the, the, the time that was right for us to be called, he did so so that he could fellowship with us. He yearns, he, he, he desires all of us to fellowship with himself. To fellowship with the Son. But by inference, that fellowship bleeds over into the local church. Because here is where we fellowship with, with, the, with the Lord Jesus as well. When we come together, when we have small groups or whatever plans we have for the future, that fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ that he called us to finds expression in the local church. So as we move forward in opportunities to, to grow, to, to, uh, to move forward in, in as we talk about the, uh, the, the growth of the church and the, changing, the changes that, that we expect in the future, remember that God has called us to fellowship with one another. Part of our calling is with each other. So as we look today in that that last point, <clears throat> the fact that we've been called in order to fellowship with Jesus and by inference the body of Christ, it's critical that you and I are engaged in fellowshipping with one another. I know Luke has, uh, Luke and, and Tommy and I have been talking about uh, the, the, this this local church and what what uh, what growth opportunities we have for the future. What next steps we ought to be looking at as we're moving forward in the growth and the outreach and all of the things that this local church ought to be doing. Part of that is. Uh, he'll be walking us through the New Testament and talking about membership, leadership, and all of the things that a local church needs to see. Very biblical things. But remember, as we move into those days, as we move into those messages over these next few months, and we learn from the Word what membership looks like, as we learn from the Word what eldership looks like, and why do we have elders? Why is it important that we have elders? How do we choose those men? Who are they? What will they accomplish in our behalf? Why are they so very, very important for the stability, impact of local church? As we move through that, remember that God has called us, 1 Corinthians 1 tells us, God has called us for fellowshipping with his son and through his son with the local church. And so as we're taking those steps, remember, they're, they're, they're important for our own growth, they're important for the stability of the church, and they're important for all that we ought to be accomplishing here in our local body as we move forward. So we've gone roundabout. As you turn back over to Jude, if you would, please. Here in Jude, we see, we see that we're called. And all that we examine today is true of you and true of me we found and placed our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. As we move forward, next week we're going to look at what it means to contend for the faith 
I'd encourage you to read through that and <clears throat> expand your study a little bit and, and uh, see if you can uh, look at some additional verses that talk about the importance of the word, the importance of leadership, the importance of the local church in the contending for the faith. And we'll talk about some of that next week. And then we'll conclude with verse 24 that says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, <laughs> blameless, with great joy. Do you hear those words? That one day, those of you that are called and a part of the kingdom, one day you will stand in the presence of the creator God, blameless, blameless, with great joy. I look forward to that day. My heart hasn't grown to the place where I can really understand all of that just yet. Because right now, I'm scared to death to stand before the Creator. But He tells me. He's the one that's going to keep me. He's going to make me be able to stand in His presence, blameless. You believe that today? Word says it's true. It is. Jude reminded us today that we're called. And the impact of that calling reverberates throughout your life. Remember those things. As the world crashes in and challenges you and encourages you to fall, to slip, to go in a different direction, remember what God has called you to. Who he's called you to be. To be faithful. Let's pray together. Father, at times, it's really hard to comprehend all that you've done for us. Simply in your calling, changed us, made us your children. You brought us out of darkness into light. You brought us out of unholiness into holiness. You called us to fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you called us to fellowship with one another. And so as those truths find root in our lives, make us faithful, faithful to fellowship, the life of holiness, purity, faithfully be in your word and be able to encourage and sharpen one another as we realize that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. We're grateful for that today. As we walk out of this place, and we part with one another, help us to influence and to impact the world. Help us to share the calling of God with the lost that are around us. They're all over. Make us faithful witnesses. Make us your mouthpiece. Share the good news of the gospel those that are lost. Find us faithful when you come. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. And we thank you for the body of Christ. Help us, and en help us to enjoy the fellowship that we're about to have. And then release us into the world to challenge and to change the people around us. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.